morning once again. Um, the sermon I'm titling, uh, The Call to Commitment. The Call to Commitment. And when we make a profession of faith, something happens. We're, we're basically uh, stepping into what God has called us to, to be one with him, adopted by him into his family. And it calls for sacrifice. Sacrifice that God has given us the ability to complete by the fruit of the Spirit. And I pray that as I'm, I'm, I'm preaching, that um, the Word of God will be able to provoke you to the level of commitment that God calls us to in our journey with him. So I ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, uh, beginning at verse 18. That's page 809 in your pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 18, page 809 in your pew Bibles. According to a 2018 Gallup poll, 5% of Americans call themselves vegetarians. Another article I read from WebMD describes the various subcategories of vegetarians. Vegans, for instance, refuse all animal products, including eggs, milk, yogurt, cheese, even ice cream. That's so sad. <laughs> Fruitarians go further. They eat only fruit. Some will add nuts and plant seeds. Predictably, the number of vegans and fruitarians are very small, very small. Then there are about a million palo vegetarians. They eat only chicken and other uh, types of birds, along with fruit and vegetables. Next is roughly a million pescatarians. They eat fish, seafood, and other types of fruit and vegetables. And even some, some eat uh, eggs and dairy products. Then there's a combination of palo and pesca vegetarians, which is a combination of both, meaning they eat uh, chicken, other types of birds, fish, eggs, seafoods, dairy products, along with fruits and vegetables. After my light investigation, I found the secret behind the nation's supposed rising vegetarian movement is that in reality, over 60% of vegetarians actually eat meat. At this point, I realize that almost anyone can be a vegetarian, <laughs> right? Since palo and pesca are both from Latin words for fowl and fish. All we have to do is use a word from an ancient language. I found the Greek word fellow, which means I wish or I want. So I invite you to join me in the newest subcategory of vegetarians called the felitarian. Felitarians only eat meat when they want to. <laughs> Besides that, we don't eat meat. How many are with me? All right, all right, all right. Here's my point. The fact that over 60% of vegetarians actually do eat meat supports the belief that some people just want a label that says, I have strict disciplines. I, 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 I have strict principles. Without them really paying the price 
for those disciplines or strict principles. This is similar to what we find in the Gospels. Great crowds of Israelites called themselves disciples of Christ, but in reality, they only followed him when they wanted to. When they, when they didn't think or know that it would cost them something, like the great crowds in John chapter 6 that Jesus fed, they were okay following Jesus until they found out that it would cost them true commitment, a.k.a. to eat his flesh and drink his blood, also known as becoming born again, becoming a new creation, casting off the old and putting on the new through the spiritual renewal of the mind. Once they realized that, John chapter 6 and verse 66 says, many of them turned back and no longer walked with him. In our passage today, we see the Lord calling some disciples to a true life of serious commitment to him, life-changing commitment that, that says, I'm going to move from following him in a loose sense of the word to a life of faithfulness and sacrifice by giving my life. And the Lord promised to make them fishers of men through the proclamation of the gospel. My two points for this sermon is point number one, the call for them, and point number two, the call for us. Follow me as I read Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 25. This is the holy, pure, unchanging word of God. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, meaning Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. At this time, I ask you to pray with me and for me. Father, I thank you for your great grace that you would use a simple man like me to bring forth your word, Lord. I pray that I am I'm accurate and faithful to the text. Please guide me, Lord. I pray your spirit would fill us to overflowing, that the word would be easy to understand. May I not stand in the way as a stumbling block, causing more confusion than we had before we started. Please help me in all of these things, Lord. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Point number one, the call for them. The last time we looked at Matthew, before we started the uh, series in 1 Timothy, we focused mainly on three things from the early part of this chapter. Number one, we focused on how Jesus overcame his temptation in the wilderness. Number two, we looked at John the Baptist being in prison at this time. And number three, we looked at Jesus changing his location. 
moving from Nazareth to Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. And how it was there, he actually fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. I'll read it for you uh, real quick. There it says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Concerning this prophecy, we discussed how was it that a place that was considered to be a region of darkness for so long, a, a place of death and unbelief, can all of a sudden turn into a habitation of glorious and great light? And we discovered that it was because Jesus, the light of the world, had now made this place his home. And he preached the gospel powerfully, crying out, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like many rabbis and philosophers in his day, Jesus was an itinerant teacher and preacher, meaning he traveled from place to place, often on a circuit, covering a circuit. Today, uh, people go to school and learn from many uh, teachers, many uh, uh, philosophers, but at that time, Rabbis and philosophers came to the people in the form of one captivating personality who gathered uh, students or disciples to himself. If people were drawn to such a teacher, they attached themselves to him. Among the Jews, a rabbi's dedicated disciples followed him everywhere. They imitated his manner, and many of them memorized his principal teachings word for word. But Jesus did not wait for potential uh, disciples to sit and wait and consider whether they were going to uh, follow him or not. In verses 18 and 19, Matthew tells us Jesus initiated the action by telling four brothers who were fishermen by trade to follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus told them, follow me. That is, not only now and then as you have done since my baptism, which is implied from a harmonization of the Gospels, which I'll show you in a little uh, bit. Uh, but now he's saying, leave your secular work permanently and become my constant disciples, that by continually hearing my doctrine and seeing my miracles, you will be qualified to become my apostles to the world. His mission his passion was too serious for him to sit around waiting for people to choose him. So through the Father's choosing and the Holy Spirit's drawing, Jesus begins gathering disciples who would be with him all the time to witness everything he did. Now there was a wider circle who followed him. And some of them were dedicated, but they were not always with him in his travels. Only a select few were called to this mission, like James and John, who we will see in uh, verses 21 and 22. When Jesus called them, the scripture says immediately they left their boat and their father and, and, and followed Jesus. The call seems abrupt at first reading. It sounds as if Jesus spotted 
and then summon four strangers who, because of one act that could have been beginner's luck, left their nets, their boats, their families, their friends, and followed him. An honest question, if we're honest about it, uh, would be, how could these men leave their whole lives so suddenly at the call of someone they just met? But as I touched on earlier, a comparison of the Gospels reveals that these disciples had already met Jesus. You may remember from John chapter 1 when John the Baptist told his disciples, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Then afterwards, as Jesus was uh, coming towards them on the next day, John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John baptized on that day. Uh, He baptized Jesus on that day, but on the next day, John looked at Jesus as he walked by and said it again, partially. He just said, behold the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples heard him say this and began to follow Jesus. According to John chapter 1, verse 40, Andrew was one of those disciples. And then he told his brother, Peter, come on, and they followed Jesus. As we compare scripture with scripture, we learn that Andrew and Peter did not continue with Jesus at that time. It appears they met him at his baptism, began to follow him, but was separated from him as Jesus was led into the wilderness uh, by the Holy Spirit and tempted by Satan for 40 days. And then sometime after that, he met up with them again. And looking closely at verse 12 of this very chapter, we see that at this time, John is in prison, as I uh, mentioned earlier. So I'm not sure how much time went by between Jesus' meeting these disciples at his baptism and his coming upon them once again by the Sea of Galilee. Some commentators say uh, a couple of months. Uh, One guy said a year went by. But all I know is that some time passed since their first encounter. Either way... Jesus is now calling them to leave those fish behind and preach the gospel permanently. What a calling. At one point in time in Western Europe and the Americas, there was no higher calling than for a man to to assume the office of preacher or bishop, as some called it, preaching the good news that Jesus came to save sinners took the utmost priority in society. At that time, people would travel great distances to hear the gospel proclaimed. Now, unfortunately, some people in those very same areas won't cross the street to hear sound biblical preaching and teaching. Praise God, it's not like that everywhere. There are still people who are Hungry for the pure gospel. About a month ago, while my family and I were on vacation, as I was attempting to witness the man at the, at the, at the front desk at the place we were staying, he revealed to me in our discussion that he was already a Christian and he had a church in Silver Springs, Maryland. However, he also revealed that although he doesn't do many things great things, I should say, in his church in Maryland. Every year, he's afforded the opportunity to go home to Kenya in the months of November and December and do open-air preaching. And he tells me, he let let me know that the size of the crowd last year, for whatever reason, 
was larger than it had ever been. When he went in November and they started out, there was about 100 people there. And then every day it seemed to double. And he's looking at this crowd and he showed me some pictures on Facebook and he was amazed. And so I asked him, um, half jokingly, I said, what was it? Are you guys doing some fake miracles like Benny Hinn? Or are you feeding the people? What is it that is drawing the people? And he said, no way. We just preached the gospel. And he just went on. And the more he spoke, the excitement in him was, was, was rising. And, 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 and I could barely get a word in. And some people say that's impossible. But he was, he was just so excited. And I was excited. And in that lobby, we just basically had a great time of praise. It was a great, great, great time to meet someone who still has a heart for evangelism be rewarded by a great draw of people who want Jesus, period. It appears God chose, elected, and called him to leave his occupation for a time and preach the gospel because God still has people who want the gospel. We can get discouraged. We can even give up telling people the good news because it seems as if nobody wants it. But people do. I ask that you don't get discouraged. I ask that you ask God to encourage you, to, to, to give you the words to say, whether it's in the supermarket or on the job, just to continue to let people know how important it is to receive Christ before you leave this earth. In verses 20 and 22, we see the word immediately. 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. From the exter external call of Jesus to the internal act of the spirit, these men were motivated to follow Jesus. But if we were to examine Luke's account of this very same Day, we would gather a little more information. So if you will, turn to me to Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, page 860 in your pew Bibles. Luke 5, beginning at verse 1, 860 in your pew Bibles. Luke 5, 1 through 11 says, on one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered him, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sing. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. 
from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Luke tells us that on that day, Jesus was teaching by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee. The crowd grew so large that they kept pressing and pressing upon him until he had to climb into Peter's boat. And, and he asked Peter to push out a little bit, push out from the shore just a little. Then he sat down and began to preach. Now, it was customary for a teacher to stand respectively uh, during the reading of the scriptures, but to sit humbly yet authoritatively when it was time to teach. After he finished teaching the crowd, Jesus gave Peter an absurd command, at least in Peter's mind. He told him, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. That's ridiculous, Peter could have been thinking. Every experienced fisherman knows that the fish we netted at night migrate to the middle, away from the noise. They migrate to the middle of the lake and they go deep and sometimes they go so low we cannot reach them with our nets. That's why we fish at night. At that point, Peter could have told Jesus, you stick to the spiritual stuff or even to your carpentry, but leave the fishing to us. Stay in your lane. Jesus. But he didn't. In verse 5 of Luke 5, Peter said, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Peter calls Jesus Master, revealing that he knows who Jesus is to some degree and acknowledges his authority. So when Jesus commands him to put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch, Peter says, at your word, I will let down the nets. Peter obeyed, and he was rewarded for his obedience. Verses 6 and 7 state, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. All of them obeyed, and all of them were rewarded for their obedience. At that moment, they all recognized the finger of God. This is the finger of God. But in verse 8, Peter falls down on his knees and says, Depart from me, I, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Why did he respond that way? Because he's confronted with his frailty and sinfulness and recognizes he's standing in the presence of a holy, all-knowing, powerful God. Peter's response is essentially correct, but he draws one false conclusion. He knows he has seen the hand of God, but concludes that he should be separated from God's holy presence. On the contrary, Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men, which means, in actuality, you need to be drawing closer to me. And this statement was not only directed at Peter, but also to his brother, brother Andrew, to James, and to John. In those moments when we doubt God, when we're lacking faith, that's not the time to shrink back 
in shame because we got it wrong. That's the time to lean forward into his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace, to, 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 to read the words of scripture and to believe them. When we fail, it's not time to go the other way, miss church, stay away from your close Christian uh, family, from the older person who's mentoring you to the person who's around your age that you guys are fellowshipping together in likeness of mind, or to the younger people who you are called to guide and disciple and lead and bring back whenever they doubt their salvation because young people will do that. When we fail, it's the time to say, Lord, God, Everything you say about me is true. I am flesh. I am weak. My frame is nothing, but it is because of you, Lord, that I stand. It's because of you I'm able to get up in the morning and go forward when everything else is crumbling. Why am I shocked that I fail? Did I somehow think that I came to you because I was a good person or that you received me because I was great? No. Before you said, let there be light. You said, Michael Moultrie, I am going to work through his ancestors and get to him. Why? Because I have plans for him. And I'm giving you Genesis to Revelation. As you read the word of God, don't just read it as dead words on a page. He says, when you fall, come forward. When you fall, the righteous man gets up seven times. When you fall, the Lord will receive you because you have been adopted. And you know the adoption agency process in our world. But in this world, the adopted child had the same rights as the natural born child. The same rights. Some say even more because he could never be cut out, cut out of the will. Our God is so good. I need you to understand that this morning. His good is actually beyond comprehension, but believe what you read. It is not time to shrink back when you fall. And for Peter, it's not time to shrink back. I'm going to need you, Peter. So come forward. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Peter fell to his knees recognizing his inferior disposition, while at the same time acknowledging Jesus' lofty and high status as Lord and Master. So he said, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He actually reminds me of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah saw, you remember, when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord as he sat upon his throne high and lifted up, Isaiah said he heard angels saying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then the next thing Isaiah knows is that the foundations of the threshold are shaking. They're shaking. And then he hears a voice in the midst of all of this smoke. And at this moment, this man, Isaiah, who loved the Lord and was respected as a man of God, cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. What would cause him to confess that? He goes on to tell us, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
The reason we are told in Scripture that blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law we meditate day and night, day and night, night and day. Why is that? So God can reveal himself to us through his word and get us to a place where we can see him, where we can know him and stand in awe of this mighty God. Even to a place where we can honestly say, maybe my eyes have not seen the Lord physically. But from the testimony of far more than two or three witness, witnesses throughout the pages of scripture, I know that he is Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of his glory. By studying the word of God, the Lord matures us from one level to the next level. And those who read consistently can attest that they are growing. Why? Because they will read a portion of the Bible that they know they've read previously, but this time they see something that was never revealed to them before. It's as if someone snuck in and inserted a Bible verse, a new verse. But many times this is due to our growth by the Spirit of God opening our eyes and revealing the person and work of Jesus Christ, which draws us closer to God. And I want you to notice the similarities between Peter and Isaiah's reaction after Jesus revealed himself to them. Peter was crushed under the weight of his sinfulness in doubting the Lord. Isaiah was crushed under the weight of his sinfulness of having unclean lips. But after acknowledging and confessing their sinful state, they both were encouraged by the Lord and they both were used mightily by God. Peter was told he would be a fisher of men. Isaiah was told, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then he heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. Both were convicted of sin. Both confessed their sin. And both were used mightily by God. God always, he's always used people to catch other people for his kingdom. In Jeremiah chapter 16 and verse 16, God surveys his scattered people. And he looks from on high and he says, behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord. And they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters. And they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. Maybe you aren't called to be a fisher of people on a big scale as a full-time uh, missionary or even a pastor. But all of us are called to make disciples, to evangelize, to go and tell people the good news that Jesus Christ save, saves sinners in some form and in some fashion. And as I touched on earlier, these men had previously met Jesus, yet they were still fishermen. But on this day, something is different. These men see that Jesus is both God with us and God for us. Jesus exercised his power to bless them on that day and not curse or rebuke them. 
Therefore, they know that they can now trust him. So they follow him. As his disciples, learners of Christ, we know we can trust him and use the simple message of the gospel coming out of our mouths to bring salvation. We don't have to add anything. We don't have to change it to make it acceptable to the world. We don't have to make it cool. We don't have to make God look like us. And we don't have to make unbelievers think that they're this close to God. What do I mean by that? We don't tell unbelievers they're almost there. All they need is Jesus and they got it. Most of us, most of us would say, I would never tell them anything like that. Okay. But when you tell people Jesus loves you, but never mention repentance, in some, if not most of their minds, they hear you saying, since God loves me just the way I am, why do I have to change? Why do I have to stop doing what I'm doing? Because he loves me, right? That's what I heard. That's what I'm hearing. I put the TV on. That's what Jesus loves me. Wow, that is good. For a minute, I thought that I would turn because I was convicted that I was doing wrong. But no, Jesus loves me. I want you to hear this close, right? John the Baptist came early in his ministry. And what did he say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it eventually cost him his life. Jesus came early in his ministry, and what did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the word they used, metanoia, doesn't mean just a simple changing of the mind at that moment, of how I feel, uh, you know, I'm, I, I don't uh, feel right doing this right now. So I'll stop right now. No, it is a radical change of life, radically turning from sin. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working with the word of God over time that transforms our ungodly deeds, our ungodly tongue, our ungodly thoughts, our ungodly watching, our ungodly listening, our ungodly acquaintances that we don't want to give up because I don't want to be so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good lies. That will lead you into being so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good. We don't fall into the lies of the world. We follow the Lord God with our whole heart, mind, and soul. It's no academic change of mind. So the next question that comes is, doesn't Jesus love us unconditionally? Hear me well. God loves his converted, adopted, and justified children too much to leave them living in filth and following Satan. Because you're following someone. According to John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He could not have said it any clearer in a beautiful section of scripture from chapter 8 to chapter 10. 
I mean, if we would just say, I believe it. And as we like to quote, oh, we walk by faith and not by sight. But we'll see people who claim to be Christians, people we know, some people that we love, and then they'll turn and they'll begin, begin living like the world. And we'll say, well, I know you can lose your salvation because my uncle used to be saved. That is not what Jesus is saying. He uses possessive pronouns all the way. Mine, mine, mine. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. And some of us, we move according to feelings. I feel so far away from God right now. What does that have to do with truth? Anybody over 10 knows we're not to dictate our lives by our feelings. Our feelings change. Believe Jesus, please. His sheep hear his voice. They follow me. They follow me. I love that verse. But the problem is many are not his sheep because they're not following him. It's not hard mathematics. It's simple. Too many people, what, ha what has happened is too many people have he heard a watered-down gospel that never convicted them to say no to all of the sins they always loved. And most likely they were never converted. They never received a new heart, so they never became a new creation in Christ, once again, God loves his children that he birthed into his kingdom too much to leave them in the same death-inducing sins that continually brought them shame and guilt and condemnation. We hate it. And Jesus says, get up and follow me. That's it. Get up and follow me. Worship. Connect your hearts to the brethren, to the sisters. Call someone and ask them, how can I pray for you? And then if they say, well, how can I pray for you? Then you share honestly and openly. That becomes so hard when we don't have any relationships already. That becomes hard when we come right in and go right out and don't fellowship. We go back into the world, the hard world, for 166 hours of the week. Those two hours under the word of God, it's not enough. It's like washing once a month. It's not enough. People will say, you stink, right? So to circumvent that, we wash. You don't have any fellowships. Life goes downhill. It is so hard to do this thing on your own with surface relationships. No one to cry with. Romans twelve fifteen. we weep with those who weep. How can anybody weep with you if you just put up this shield? Good morning. Have a good week. Month after month. Good morning. Have a good week. And you're dying inside. Here's the thing. I'm not going to be able to finish this sermon. I'm not going to stop right now, but I just want you to know that. Right? But I don't want to give you so much from the word and extend the time and you miss what's 
really important, the things that I believe, all of it's important, but I don't want to just keep going. And somebody told me yesterday, less is more when I spoke about the sermon. Now, that's probably because he doesn't like my preaching, but I'm, I'm just saying I believe there's some truth to that when you just give someone too much and you go on and on. So I'm just going to try to finish somewhere, right? When we talk about those same sins that cause us, cause us pain and hurt and, and, and bad relationships, Jesus says, all you have to do is turn. I have given you my spirit. The Father has given you our spirit. The Holy Spirit has come and said, I am here. I am with you. And we look at the fruit of the spirit. And we say, every single one of these fruit are for the bad times. Anybody could be loving when somebody's loving you back. But you have the power from God in you to love in the midst of hurt. That's foreign to us, but think of Christ on the cross, please. That's foreign to us, but I want you to think of not just on the cross, but his life here. People that he healed, turning against them, as Matt spoke of in John chapter 5. This man crippled for 38 years, but as soon as he finds out who Jesus is, Jesus is he goes and rats him out. Oh, I know who it is, go get him, basically. Basically, if Jesus can endure, we have to endure. We have to even have a desire to endure. We all will fail, but do you even want to? Do you even want to? Okay, all right, okay. I'm not even going to do point number two. I'm not. I'm just going to say this and I'm done, okay? All right? God willing, we'll pick it up whenever I speak again. But because... We are in the image of God. Not only is that for our sake, but that's for those who God has given us, especially those in our household. And I just need to say this, our children. God has given us a template on how we deal with our children, the next generation, the one who we're praying that God would save them. The ones that we're praying for that who made a profession of faith, they may have even been baptized, but now They've come back from college and they don't want that stuff anymore, right? So if you have a toddler, I want you to project into the future and think, how do you want him to live apart from you? God calls us to discipline our children. I, I will say that. He calls, us, he calls us to show them his goodness and his grace and his mercy. And if you have a four-year-old, a five-year-old, who you're not disciplining, you're going against God. Uh, Proverbs 13 and 24 says, whoever spears the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Here's how that works. You have a four-year-old. Let's stay with a four-year-old right now. And that four-year-old is just, um, we'll say violent. Or we could say he lies all the time. And you allow him to do that and go on. Do you think he's going to change at 14 on his own? It doesn't work like that. And when you discipline your child, you are building discipline in him. The things that he wants to do, he knows he's going to get in trouble. So half the time, he won't do it. The other half, the flesh is going to come out. He's a child. But half the time, he's going to think, and he has a decision to make at that moment. The four-year-old, he has a decision. Do I risk it? Is it worth the disappointed look on my parents' face? 
project at 14. You've kept that up. Now he's 14. A longer leash. If you didn't give him a time where he would have to discipline himself, he's not going to know how. He's never learned that this is no, I shouldn't do it because you didn't give him that barrier at four. You didn't give him that, that, that way to grow and learn to make decisions apart from you. So God says, if you do not discipline him, it shows you actually hate him. And on the other side of that is, but he who disciplines his son diligently, that's the one who loves his child. And I'm going to stop right there. I pray that we can pick it up whenever I come back. But I thank you for your patience. Please pray with me. Father, I thank you for this time. I love you, Father God. I ask you to forgive me, a sinner. A sinner who does not follow you uh, perfectly. A sinner who does not do the things that he should do all the time. And I, I thank you for your grace, Lord. I thank you so much. You are so good, Lord. I, it, your goodness is beyond comprehension to the nth degree. But I pray that would not cause us to be discouraged just because we can't figure you out, just because we think that we would give up on you. Lord, I pray we would never give up on your love and your kindness. Father, please help us in those moments that we want to turn. Please help us in those moments we want to do wrong. And I pray for the weakest person here that we may all be strong together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.